Welcome to the TAGT Podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. A special thank you to our sponsor, Renzuli Learning. Check them out and get your free trial at RenzuliLearning.com. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Joseph Renzuli and Dr. Sally Reese. Dr. Joseph Renzuli is a leader and pioneer in gifted education and applying the pedagogy of gifted education teaching strategy to all students. The American Psychological Association named him among the 25 most influential psychologists in the world. Dr. Renzuli received the Harold W. McGraw Jr. Award for Innovation in Education. Considered by many to be the Nobel uh, for educators and was a consultant to the White House Task Force on Education of the Gifted and Talented. Renzulli is Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of Connecticut, where he was also served as the Director of the National Research Center on the Gifted and Talented. His research has focused on the identification and development of creativity and giftedness in young people and on organizational models and curricular strategies for total school improvement. A focus of his work has been on applying the strategies of gifted education to the improvement of learning for all students. Dr. Renzulli currently leads the Renzulli Center for Creativity, Gifted Education, and Talent Development. Sally Reese is the Vice Provost for the Academic Affairs, a, a Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor, and a Teaching Fellow in Educational Psychology at the University of Connecticut. She currently holds the Letitia Neig Chair in Educational Psychology. She was a public school teacher and administrator for 15 years prior to the work at UConn. She has authored more than 250 articles, books, book chapters, monographs, and technical reports. She has traveled extensively across the country conducting workshops and providing professional development for school districts on enrichment programs and gender equity programs. Sally serves on the editorial board of the Gifted Child Quarterly and is a past president of the National Association for Gifted Children. She is also a fellow of the American Psychological Association and was named a Distinguished Scholar of the National Association for Gifted Children. Thank you both for being here today. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, well, we are excited and honored to talk to you both. And, and what a great way to start off just by saying, um, focusing in on your why. And we can get into a little bit of your history and how you got here, so to speak. But after decades of work for both of you, um, could you just kind of start us off with why, why GT, maybe why still GT uh, after all these years? And why don't we start with you, Sally? Well, why GT for me was probably like many, many other people. I, I was a first-year teacher, and I had an extremely bright student in one of my six ninth-grade English classes I was teaching. Um, and I had no idea what to do with her. And when I tried to look at the professional literature, there wasn't a lot out there. So I became interested in, in, in what to do. I also, um, as a young student, was in an accelerated class, uh, completely grouped with 20 other students for four years. And it was an incredible learning experience for me. And I wondered why the high school that I was teaching in wasn't offering some opportunities like that to this young, young, young girl <clears throat> who changed uh, a lot of my, the trajectory of the rest of my life. I think Joe's story is somewhat similar. Yes, it is very similar. Uh, when I started teaching, uh, I had some kids, I was a science and math teacher, and I had some kids in my classes that 
I quite frankly didn't know how to deal with as far as providing them uh, the right level of challenge and also enjoyment in learning. And um, one of the significant things that happened to me that steered me in the direction of school-wide enrichment was after Sputnik was shot up into, the spa into space, the superintendent asked me to uh, start a science program for gifted kids. And he sent me a list of all the kids with 130 and above IQ. And I did start that program, but I also taught general science. And I had some kids in my general science class who were just outstanding, very interested and engaged in anything scientific, very creative. So I started sneaking them into the Saturday <laughs> morning program that I started for the quote gifted, or I would say 130 IQ kids. And they did just as well or better in all of the kinds of things that we did. Hmm. So a big part of both of your call to action, so to speak, your YGT was experiencing that students had a need here that mm -hmm. needed to be filled. And I, I think there's something to that that obviously could connect to a lot of our educators out here with TAGT. Yeah, and I also think there's the, the why stay in the field is because I think both Joe and I will be believe in a, a few different things. One is there's way too many very smart kids that are underachieving. <clears throat> That's been a tenet of a lot of the work that I've done over time. And it's amazing to me that more people don't understand that when you don't challenge young people, young students, they grow up thinking that being smart means they don't have to work very hard and that being smart means that effort shouldn't have to come into anything. And then the first time they're asked to expend effort, instead of saying, oh, this is what real work is, they say, oh, I'm, I'm not smart. You know, my teachers and parents were wrong. So underachievement of bright kids has kept me involved. And also our firm belief that learning experience is based on a strength-based pedagogy, such as the school-wide enrichment model can make a difference in young people's lives can give them opportunities to find work that they love. And when they have these experiences that we provide as part of SEM, they grow up to be very different young people and people that know young people who know what their interests are, that can feel passion about the work that they do in school. And many of them follow that work into the careers that they select, the majors they select. So we're really fortunate that we've been able to work in our field for so long and seen the long-term and positive effects of our work. One of the things that I would add on to what Sally said about our strength-based approaches that uh, we make a distinction in our work between what I sometimes call lesson learning giftedness or schoolhouse giftedness. We know who those kids are. They all do great work in accelerated acceleration programs. And I have no arguments with about that whatsoever. But there is a concept that I strongly advocate, which I call creative productive giftedness. Actually, I prefer to use the G word as an adjective, creative and productive gifted behaviors. And I think that if we're going to get more unrepresented populations into our programs, one of the things we have to do is to gather data on what I call assessment for learning rather than assessment of learning. Assessment of learning tells me a great deal about what you already know or what questions you can answer on an IQ test. 
assessment for learning looks at things like interests, like preferred modes of learning, like the way young people like to express themselves, and also the kinds of executive function skills that make things work, organization, planning, communication. Uh, and so this is again, a little bit different, but if we're going to get some of those overlook, overlooked kids, especially among lower income and minority groups, we've got to look at some of these, people call it soft data, but uh, I think that knowing a kid's interest is always the starting point for me from diapers to doctorate. If I can find an interest in a person, then I can capitalize upon that interest to provide some challenging kinds of learning opportunities. Absolutely. So that, that interest-driven um, work of students and, and what they're doing, um, why do you think that why do you think that's such a challenging message for gifted educators out there or, or for uh, gifted services to, to look at it through that lens? Well, I think that one of the main reasons is that we live in a very overly prescriptive education environment. And uh, when Common Core State Standards came out, somebody in gifted wrote about uh, Common Core Standards for the gifted. And basically, uh, I think that I don't want common core standards if I want to develop things that lead to creative and productive giftedness. Yeah. Common core says you must cover this material by this date to prove you know it on this test. And so I, I think that uh, we need to give teachers of the gifted much more freedom in deciding what they do rather than having those decisions made in the State Department of Education in Connecticut or Texas. I also think looking, I agree, and I also think that looking at interest takes more time because some students don't know they're interested in something if they haven't been exposed to it. So Joe and I you know, believe very, very strongly in being opportunity makers. You know, we, we create opportunities. In fact, one of the things that I, I like most about our school-wide enrichment model approach is that the concept that Joe developed many years ago or opportunity, resources, encouragement. If you look at what brings a gifted student the most joy and what brings their gifts and talents to some type of creative productive fruition 10 years later or 20 years later, it's always the right opportunities, the right encouragement and the right resources. I mean, if we were watching the Olympics now, it's all about these things. It's about the kids that have you know, that live in the right place, that have the right teachers, that, that are born to parents that can afford to give them opportunities or that look for other tools, even if they can't afford it. So if we think about academic talent development in much the same way, you know, we're looking at young kids that are, you know, that are artistic, that need opportunities, resources, encouragement, young kids that are scientific that need that, young people that are interested in history. With those three resources, we have a much better chance of developing gifts and talents, which is the core of our work. I think that um, sometimes the proof is in the pudding. Um, one of the things I've recently quoted in a couple of articles is by Lewis Terman, who you know is the founder of High IQ Gifted Education. And this is in his final volume in the five volume series. And um, The Gifted Child Grows Up is, I believe, the title of the volume. And what he says there is that the thing that, that 
distinguish between the highly su successful and the unsuccessful students in later life were all of the soft skills that Sally and I have been talking about. And uh, I, I don't think that these are skills that we can sit a child down and, sit and say, this, today we're gonna to talk about uh, developing interests. I think what we do in the triad model, for example, type one enrichment, is we bring in different opportunities, speakers, virtual reality, uh, videos, things like that, all across the curriculum area. And that's for all children, not just identified kids. And then asking questions, we look to see who might be interested in following up on that type one enrichment. We do the same with type two as well. And those kids whose light bulb turns on, so to speak, are then given, as Sally said, the uh, opportunities, resources, and encouragement to go forward with a particular product in their area. One of the things I believe is that the only way to develop these skills is by having kids work on a product with other young people uh, when necessary. And that's where the skills come from. We can't sit down and say, today I'm gonna to teach you lesson 101 in communication. Or grit. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it just keeps hitting me too, that there's so much of this uh, that I, I, find, I would imagine that many adults would just step into this and agree with this and understand this in this practical sense. But you brought up, Sally, that putting it in terms of that this is a way to go about uh, things academically, a way to go about how to do school. It seems like sometimes there's a disconnect or a dis, uh, maybe that's where maybe some trouble comes in, of, but this is a way to do school. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think one of the things we are so proud of is our our, long, our longevity in this area has enabled us to follow some of these students, you know, for 30, 40 years. Um, we started a school in Hartford, Connecticut called the Renzulli Academy. Joe did not name it. I was one of the founder of it with a assistant superintendent for high potential students, all of whom are from culturally diverse groups. I think there's maybe a couple of white kids in the entire school. And just to see the change in some of these young people in one year, one academic year, to see them flourish, to see them go from kids that were turned off and bored and disinterested and unmotivated and underachieving to learning how to work, to finding projects they love, to doing history day. It's the, it's the pedagogy of talent development that Joe and I are so interested in. And, Again, if we can offer this pedagogy to more students, isn't that wonderful? But at the same time, we must offer it to kids that are academically able, or many of them are going to turn off. And, and you know, you and I hear from these people, and Joe, we hear from these people all the time. We get emails, we get phone calls about very, very bright young people who've grown up not to find their area, majoring in the wrong thing, underachieving in life. So, you know, we, we need to do more to cultivate that talent development when people are still young people are still in school. That's, it's to us the most important thing we do. Absolutely. And, and obviously we're, we're talking about uh, accomplishing this through the school-wide enrichment model. But before we even get into that a little bit more, and you've already started to, uh, let, let's just talk about the idea of enrichment and enrichment being part of the answer here. Could you maybe define that and, and maybe um, have that transition into why the school-wide enrichment model is really a great answer. We, we use a concept 
called the three E's to sort of define enrichment. And the first one is enjoyment. Anything that a, a young person, older person enjoys doing, they work at better, they try out new things, their creativity comes out. And so we try to make sure that the kinds of things that off, are offered are not just more lesson learning, schoolhouse giftedness. Enjoyment leads to engagement. And engagement is very hard to define, but you'll know it when you see it. Uh, I always say one of the best ways to uh, define engagement is to think of the first time that you ever fell in love with something or someone. And all of a sudden, your whole body chemistry changes. And you look in the mirror in the morning and say, no, I got to part my hair this way. I'm going to see so-and-so today. And all of a sudden, you're turned on to something. And I believe that enjoyment leads to engagement. And engagement leads to the, the first E across the curriculum, and that is enjoyment of learning. Uh, most kids think of uh, going to school as just the side of going to prison or hell. Uh, and uh, when a child is enjoying what they're doing, they're engaged in it, then they're going to have a much better attitude toward the whole process of learning. Yeah, and the 30 of that is enthusiasm. So we are, you know, we we like to think of enrichment as not accidental either, Michael. It's really important that, you know, a lot of people think of enrichment as a haphazard collection of various activities. We think enrichment needs to be planned. It needs to be systematic. If we're going to expose kids to something in the arts, we need a vehicle to see which student wants to follow up, which student has gotten the most enthusiastic about this opportunity, so that, that there's a planning part of school-wide enrichment that deals with exposure, training, and then opportunities for follow-up. And that's, that's critical, that that's the three E's. Uh, question that I'm, I'm sometimes asked is, all right, what happens when a child gets turned on to something? And this is where type two enrichment comes in. Type two enrichment, think of them as thinking skills. Uh, and uh, there's a number of, it's actually broken down into five subcategories. But uh, just to give an example, uh, a teacher that I worked with a while back got very interested in her own family history. And uh, so she found a lot of records from her immigrant parents, Ellis Island, being in the army and in Europe and all of that. And some kids got very interested. So what she did was she then went and found some what we call how-to books on the study of genealogy. You, you, wanna, you wanna have some professional skills in order to do it like the big guys do. As a matter of fact, my favorite definition off the cuff of type three enrichment is the young person thinking, feeling, very important, and doing like the practicing professional even if they're doing it at a more junior level than a scientist from the University of Texas or a filmmaker from Hollywood. They're doing what the big guys do. And that's where the kinds of what I call gifted behaviors develop. And again, I also believe that you don't want to develop them for nothing. You want to develop them so that a child can develop a product that might be for an audience of just his or her classroom, it might be for something for the school newspaper. It might be something that they're going to submit to the state science fair competition. But 
I think that the, the work of practicing professionals is always product audience oriented. And we wouldn't be doing this podcast if it wasn't product and audience oriented. And I believe that this also creates a lot of the enjoyment that's gonna make you wanna make it the best one you did. So there's an element of authenticity in terms of the experience of what the student is actually doing and how they're showing their learning that if that's missing, maybe we're not accessing the most out of our gifted services. Yeah, and I also think there's, an, there's a, there's, uh, if I can just be altruistic for a minute, if we think a little bit about young people wanting to have an impact on something, one of the things that Joe and I are committed to is thinking about ways that academically talented and high potential students can use their talents to benefit our society. So for years, we've talked about type three enrichment, for example, being problem-based. What's a problem in your school you can solve? What's a problem in your community you can solve? And the idea of, of having young people use their talents to design a service, to make a, a difference, to have an impact, to do something that makes the world of another child or another school or a, a neighbor or a community member better. We believe that's, that's a wonderful way to think about using one's talents that could influence these young people and change the direction of their life. It, it, and when you see young people involved in these kinds of outreach and impact types of projects, we do believe that many of them make a decision about going into a career that's going to be a career for the public good. And, and that's a, a very important part of our work. And it has been for decades. Absolutely. And it makes me think of the identity parallel of the parallel curriculum model, which I know is, is something that y'all have contributed to and is a big part of things. And, and having work that impacts how students sees themselves, how it impacts their community. I'd imagine if we have gifted services doing that throughout the country, uh, we'd be changing the world for a better place for sure. Absolutely. Um, we, we agree. And you know, part of the parallel curriculum developed from Joe's multiple menu model and and that's been a very, very big impact on our work. We love the idea of building curriculum around a student's interest, but also around a notion of, of a higher good. And again, using one's abilities and talents and, and having one's identity be based on making a positive difference. What, what better can we do for bright kids than that? And uh, one of the things that uh... You've, we've got in our schools is a lot of gifted programs that people just don't recognize. Extracurricular activities. Mm -hmm. Who teaches uh, being the faculty advisor of the school newspaper? Who teaches a band, chorus, uh, drama? Who directs the school play? Yeah, and that, so you've got a teacher that is a little bit more turned on to that topic. This is where we developed our concept mm -hmm. of enrichment clusters. Who comes? other kids that are interested. If you go to chorus, I'm not gonna put you down because it's not manly enough, you know? <laughs> so, and why do they go to these things? Because there's gonna be a basketball game Friday night, a school newspaper that's due to come out, a school play that is coming along, a uh, state history day fair, which kids in Connecticut, a lot of them enter into. <laughs> and so it, it's always, those things that define really what we consider what makes a problem real. Absolutely, man. Uh, so much, so many challenging things within that. And, and just to kind of continue this conversation, 
Uh, Sally, I know one of your, or, or several of your interests have to deal with uh, different groups of students, specifically your work when it comes to students with learning disabilities, gifted females, diverse groups of talented students. Um, for, for someone maybe entering into gifted, uh, gifted education and, and wanting to learn more about that, uh, where do they get started with that? And maybe why is it so important or, or why is that such a big interest of yours? Oh, you know, I, I've been working in um, diverse communities such as Hartford, Connecticut for all of my career. And I just think that the waste of talent when we see very, very bright young people without a place to put those talents or a peer group that accepts those talents or even parents that, that can, can, and really because they're struggling themselves in some cases financially, also with identity issues that can't help them. It's such a waste for our community. I'm passionate about that, hence the work at the Renzulli Academy where I'm still very active. And also I, I feel like the same applies to students who have disabilities. So um, I currently have a Javits grant. We're studying students with autism, very bright students with autism. And the same exact same thing holds true. If you have a kid that can go to an Ivy League school, but because they're, they're dealing with both autism as well as gifts and talents, they, they're not able to have the opportunities or they have one anomalous event that has them leave college. What a waste for our society when young people that should be able to, you know, to be engineers or go to medicals, whatever it happens to be that they're passionate about ends up, you know, working at, at you know, at a, as a retail clerk somewhere or, or doing, you know, doing work that is in any way not stimulating to them and doesn't not personally meaningful and doesn't make them happy. So yeah, my work with, you know, gifted girls and, and students with the disabilities has, I think, been a great accompaniment to my work with Joe on SEM. And it's also enabled us to work together. You know, we are a husband and wife team. A lot of people don't know that. So we're, we've been married for over four decades, happily married for almost all of those <laughs> decades. <laughs> we, uh, we are best friends. And what's been really wonderful about our work is we've been able to work together, but also have these separate interests that uh, we're both, we're very passionate about. And, um, and we come together when, you know, we come, our, our work in SEM is kind of the core, but my work on gifted girls and women is, you know, let me go in another direction. And Joe's work on some of the uh, very important stuff he's done on Operation Houndstooth and multiple menu and the many different at now as assessment uh, for learning. I think it's kept us fresh with each other and enabled us to work together and learn from each other, which is also very nice. I'll send Lacey a copy of the assessment for learning article uh, in case you want to circulate it. Um, other questions? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I love just hearing your passion and interest in this work and how that it comes together, but it leads to different places. It appears that you're not, you don't just believe in this pedagogical approach that you've actually lived it out in your careers. Yes, we have and still do We're pretty much every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you have so many different uh, aspects to what you do with, whether it's your work at UConn and the uh, uh, Confritute being something that uh, has gone for, on for over 40 years. Uh, Renzuli Learning, a published company, uh, company that the school you talked about earlier, just there's so much of a reach out there for the work that you do. Uh, you know, wh what led you to, to invest in these different pathways and, and why do you think that it's really connected with people and, and really been successful? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, for me, the fact that we're always evolving our work and we try to be contemporary with the challenges that we see in contemporary schooling, and I think it's it's been the evolution of it. I mean, triad model's always been the heart of our work since 1977 when Joe published it, but you know, if we hadn't changed and evolved, um, school-wide enrichment came because we saw a lot of very important young uh, students and, and students with high potential not being served. A lot of a lot of those students were young people of color. A lot of those students were young people from high poverty backgrounds that didn't have opportunities. It wasn't that they weren't just as smart as other kids. You know, it was the opportunity gap, not the talent gap. So, I think it's it's wanting to evolve and and stay uh, relevant and hence runs early learning. We saw the online movement and we said to ourselves we could probably do a better job with online learning opportunities. Do you want to add to that? Huh? No, I think that it, it's really why anybody that has ideas think of your typical university professor, regardless of what department they're in. They're in. Think of a classroom teacher that has a wonderful idea for doing something in her classroom or his classroom. I think that uh, what keeps us at it is that we hope we can make a bigger difference. And when I say bigger, we're very proud of the fact that there are places around the world that use our work. But um, Dr. Torrance said in a conversation with me one day, the last step of creativity is audience finding. Because if you're gonna make a difference, then you've gotta have an audience. That's who you're trying to ask to do some things that are different. So it, it, it's a, we get great feelings when an email comes in where somebody in Eastern Kansas tells us a great type three project that their kid did, which we of course will put up on our office newsletter because we want other people to see what real live teachers are doing. You know, where we sit, Sally taught more recently than I did in, in public schools, but uh, we have to go through the education system at large to get through to kids. And the system at large is policymakers at the State Department that they are administrators who say, no, we're doing this because we want to get our achievement scores up and through to teachers. And I believe that teachers are really the key element here. I think that any state that wants to do something seriously in this area or any area of gifted must do all they can to protect the jobs of those people. I've seen some places that said, well, we're doing away with that. We're going with differentiation. Oftentimes that means extra worksheets for slower children and an extra book or two to read for brighter kids. I believe that Teachers with the right training, the right attitude, especially to, as Sally said, come from a strength-based perspective. So do everything you can to protect the jobs of those teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, make sure they get the training, whatever license or endorsement may be required because our programs, if they go to differentiation, there better darn well be some people there that are gonna teach teachers how to do differentiation in a more personalized way. Absolutely. And, and I think that that talking point really segues well and, and, and addressed it a bit here of, of asking the question from y'all's perspective, 
you know, what are we maybe getting wrong with gifted education today? And, and you talked a little bit about that of, of, because there's such a robust conversation going on, I feel like throughout the country right now, and I know in the state of Texas about gifted education, but um, anything more to add with what you said in terms of what we're missing and in areas where we can, we can grow? I, I think that the biggest challenge in the field right now is underrepresentation of low-income and minority groups. And so if we don't deal with that, administrators, they've already done this in place. Some places say, you know, this is too much of a headache. We're going to get rid of the gifted program. And then they say, you know, they're going to do differentiation. I think that the second thing is, and this is what Sally and I spent a lot of time working on, is to continually re-examining the pedagogy of gifted education. All learning exists on a continuum from deductive, didactic, prescriptive. Think of textbooks, tests, common core, and all that, all the way over to inductive, investigative, and inquiry-oriented. And that's not as easy to define as a percentile on the state achievement test, but you can see it when it's happening. And I do think that we need to uh, make sure that we're not just doing in gifted education programs what they do in the regular curriculum, only more material and faster. And sometimes they will say they're going at more depth and complexity, which is obviously good. But nevertheless, it's how children are learning this. If it's depth and, uh, and uh, complexity. Uh, complexity just to get a better score on a test, then you really haven't changed the model, the pedagogy underlying what we should be doing with these kids. Yeah, I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna expand on that for a second. When you say, you know, what are we missing? I think we're missing um, two, two groups creativity. And that is, we're not focusing enough on development of students create creativity and creative potential. And also as a lifelong teacher, I think a lot of the creativity of teaching is being taken away. Most of us, so many of my friends that were public school teachers that left in the last five years left because they were being asked to do things that they fundamentally believe robbed children of the opportunity to be creative and robbed them of the opportunity to be creative teachers. So I think we need to fight hard to, you know, to bear the creativity mantle. Some of it, as Joe said, is because there's more and more and more and more we're expected to do with less and less time but you can do that in a different way. It's just like with disability programs, you know, we can, we can, you can teach spelling and certain math skills by letting kids do creative work as well. It's the kind of work you do that makes learning enjoyable and engaging that makes people want to keep learning. And I, I think, you know, that's a core issue for me. One of the worst things that's happening now is that some states of uh, Florida, I know for certain a couple of others are thinking about putting cameras in classrooms and microphones on teachers. And if that's not the worst way to get away from the very, very, again, deductive, didactic, prescriptive, uh, we, are, we are heading for big trouble in our profession. We're going to deprofessionalize the profession of teaching uh, by turning them into automatrons. Yeah. So we wanna see teachers have the right to be more creative and, and we want them to be able to teach in a way that will help their children be more creative, their students be more, at all grade levels, even at the college level, by the way. Yeah. We're not immune to this ourselves at the university level. 
we, we believe the three E's, enjoyment, engagement, and enthusiasm, apply to teachers just as much as they apply yeah. to kids. When a teacher is teaching something that they're excited about, engaged in, they like talking about, telling stories, showing kids different kinds of things, that teacher's whole body chemistry changes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So um, as an encouragement for anyone listening to this podcast, maybe it's a parent, uh, maybe it's someone who's just a fan of gifted uh, uh, education along with uh, the educators who are out there. Uh, what advice do you have uh, to encourage, uh, to build more advocates? If, if they're trying to get started with being an advocate for gifted uh, education, wh- where, where do I get started? Well, I think if you're a parent, you, you try to support enrichment in your child's school. Um, and if you're, a, if you're a parent, you try to volunteer to work on things that you believe can be, um, can be positive. Um, as the PTO member, I started enrichment clusters in our own daughter's school before they did school-wide enrichment model. And enrichment clusters helped every kid in the school find something they were interested in. I think, you know, as a parent, you're in a unique position to advocate for the board too. So teachers need money. They need to have professional development. They need opportunities to go to conferences. They, they need support. Um, so I think the one way to be, you know, an advocate is to be a positive insider and be the voice with the board. Parents have way more sway with boards of education than teachers who work for those boards do. So that's certainly one way. And in terms of their own kids, you know, people ask us this all the time. If I were to say one thing to parents, it's to develop your own child's interests. It's not that only that they have one interest, but it's the capacity to have an interest and pursue that interest over time, even if the interest changes. So it's the building interests, very, very, I think, critical in terms of being a child advocate for future talent development. We also need to let people know what we're talking about other than just, again, grinding scores up. I'd like to cover this with a story. In the school down the street from us, in fact, where our daughters went to school, a young boy named Ethan came up. He was in an enrichment cluster called uh, Invention Convention, which is something that we run in our state every year. He entered it. uh, he, He took the cluster and he came up with an invention He entered it in the state competition where he won first place. He then went on to the national finals uh, in uh, Henry Ford's museum in Michigan. The principal is a friend of ours. Uh, I said to her, uh, what if you let people know about this? And she said, oh, she called the Hartford Current, which is a state newspaper, asked for the education reporter. They came out and did a story. Then one of the television stations, I forget, ABC or CBS, read the story. They came out and they did a television six o'clock news piece on Ethan's work. Now, here's what happened next. The principal started getting calls from parents, even from other schools. Why can't my son or my daughter have an opportunity to do things like that? They have to be, we have to be our best salespeople and marketers. For example, the Board of Education meets third Thursdays of every month. Why isn't the room decorated with, for example, Ethan's Ethan's invention? Um, Why don't we get more people in policy making decisions to know that very simple difference between 
deductive, didactic, and prescriptive on one hand, and inductive, investigative, and inquiry-oriented on the other. When somebody does make it big, like the young woman from Sweden who is doing the environmental studies, we all start to admire, where'd that come from? How'd she get there? Uh, and so I think we need to be make parents, obviously, and the general public aware that a gifted program just isn't learning harder times tables at a younger age. Absolutely. And I, I know there's so many uh, gifted educators uh, uh, who are listening to this, who uh, they've had a, a rough couple of years here, as everyone has with the pandemic. Um, I, I think there's there's several who are listening to what you're saying, and I, I hope feel very encouraged. Uh, what As we start to wrap up a little bit here, what, what advice do you have for them, those who are kind of in the thick of it right now, uh, and, and, and just kind of a, some some maybe words of encouragement there? Yeah, I would say focus on your own creativity too. You know, we don't take the time to do, or to, to find time for ourselves, to think, to be creative, to give ourselves a break. Um, I think to, to take a creativity break, one of the things I always talk about in my gifted girls and gifted women's talk is to, it's you, if you take some time for your own creativity, even just a small chunk of time weekly, you're gonna feel better about what you do. You're gonna feel better about yourself. And you can be a better role model for other young people, including your own kids, as well as students that you have. So I think to be kinder to yourself, give yourself some time to be a little creative, give yourself an opportunity in school to follow your heart occasionally uh, and to do things that you believe are going to make you happy as well as your students happy. That would be my advice. I couldn't agree with Sally's advice more. I, I think that uh, it's a very big challenge that we face in gifted education because we want to do things somewhat differently. In fact, I've always said the best gifted programs should be the exact opposite of what goes on in the regular classroom. One of the specific things I would suggest is that you go after learning a little bit about, say, the enrichment triad model or the school-wide enrichment model or Renzulli learning for that matter, that you go someplace that's using it. I believe that we can read about it, we can go to workshops, we can hear lectures, we can watch videos, but I think that seeing something in action, I just two hours ago just sent a, a letter to a couple of people lining them up. Uh, they want to see the SEM in New York, lining them up with a school in Queens called the Bell Academy that is a showplace of uh, school-wide enrichment model. And I believe that that's when people's heads start to nod. Okay, I think I get it. You could talk about type three. But when you see Ethan's invention, that's real to you. It makes it real. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And one of the things that I love about um, you both and your work is that it's very uh, accessible. There's plenty of pathways for us to read uh, articles, research. And as a gifted educator myself, it is so valuable to me. Uh, but as those who are listening, uh, where could they go to find out more about you and your work and, and get plugged into these conversations? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. You know, one of the things that we love to say to people is that we don't, we don't charge for SEM, we don't license, there's no subscription fee to, to read about or to be an SEM school. Um, and our website at the University of Connecticut is just filled with resources. So www.gifted.ucon.edu. 
www.ebu.edu, and then you find the school-wide enrichment model. I mean, the center is now led by our colleague and friend, Del Sigley, um, the Renzulli Center, which we're very proud about, but where there's an icon called school-wide enrichment model, and there's free movies, free articles, free PowerPoints, free books, uh, visitation sites. We have an SEM specialist that does hour-long consultations free. So we have really tried because we've been so blessed to have funding and support. We've tried to give away as much as we possibly can. So a lot of that is online free. And as my husband likes to say, downloadable. Uh, yeah. Um, the other thing is um, people can go on LinkedIn and just join my site. Uh, whenever something new comes out by Sally or me, or I just put something up by a former grad student, uh, Jane Newman, uh, doing some remarkable things in Georgia, uh, in Alabama, <laughs> sorry. Uh, and uh, if they want to just go to LinkedIn and look for my site, and uh, I'm putting stuff up. Ordinarily, I'll put two or three three things up a week. Uh, and uh, so I think that that's... Uh, another venue, another um, opportunity. Another venue. Yeah. Uh, and shortly, I'm going to be putting up a site, which I call Short Stuff. I've come around to believe that people want stuff quick and fast these days. They don't want to read a 40-page article. So some of the articles, for example, assessment for learning, I boiled down to a four-page article. And that sort of think of that as the hook. If they're really interested, then they'll go to the longer article. But I do think that uh, people don't read the way they formerly did in years gone by. Uh, they want it quick and fast, uh, visually, if, if it's available. Uh, so um, those are ways you can stay in touch. Yeah, and also, I think, the, as you mentioned earlier, the free trials of Renzulli Learning will give people a hook into that as well. We're very, very proud that the company is able to do that during the pandemic and, and continues to do it. So thank you for asking that question. Well, thank you both so much for your time here today. Uh, thanks again to our guests today, Dr. Joseph Renzulli and Dr. Sally Reese. We're so glad you could join us. If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking on the Join tab. Renzuli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. Be sure to visit our website at renzulilearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12, and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children.